So welcome on this Labor Day weekend. Those of you who made it. <laughs> Good to see so many of you. Um, a lot of times I do Labor Day sermons, but I'm not this year. I don't always, and this year I'm not. And I'm going to actually complete the book of Acts. So we're in Acts chapter 28. And this is our final sermon from the book of Acts. So I've entitled it The Final Sermon. Makes sense, right? But it's kind of a somber day because of it, you know, because this is the last sermon from the book of Acts. Because I've really enjoyed the sermons the Lord has given me from this book. And if you've missed any, I encourage you to listen to those you missed. Just as with the Micah sermons, they're very important, good sermons. And sermonaudio.com, where we post our sermons, is missing the sermons from chapters 14 through 19 of Acts at sermonaudio.com. So I plan to post one sermon each week that are missing till they're all up. Just so you know, I plan on following through, perseverance, faithfulness, all that good stuff. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll pray. The Scripture reads, Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Remember, winter was setting in. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon again is The Final Sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you for this time that we've had in the book of Acts and all that we've learned about the early church, about your people early on. And Lord, we ask and pray that we would learn much from all that we've seen and that we would adapt much of what we've seen to our lives, that we would be forewarned in other areas where we see things in the scriptures. Lord, I just ask and pray that you would guide me in the preaching of your word this morning. Help me to set forth that which you give me to declare and use it powerfully in the hearts and minds of the hearers. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So you may recall two weeks ago when we were in chapter 27 that we already covered verses 1 through 6 of chapter 28. Remember that? If, if you didn't listen to 27, by the way, or if you weren't here, I encourage you to, to listen to it. It is posted at sermonaudio.com. In that sermon, I focused heavily on how the Lord keeps and protects us when we are in mission to him, on mission for him. When he has given us something to do, we are in his hand. We are protected. We are kept by him. I talked about how our life is in his hands. Our days are in his hands. And as I said in that sermon, I said this. My belief is, is that I cannot 
hide well enough if God wants me dead, and they cannot shoot straight enough if God wants me alive. You may recall that. And that does not mean I deliberately stand in front of a speeding freight train because God will protect me any more than it meant Jesus should have thrown himself down from the pinnacle of the temple in Luke 4. What it does mean is our lives are in God's hands. We do not live in fear or trepidation. We live our lives knowing we are his and in his hands. And such is the case here. Paul's bit by a poisonous snake and he lives. God still had him on mission, still had things for him to do, namely make it to Rome to see Caesar, to continue his mission to the magistrates and to proclaim the Lord's law, word, and gospel to all men. Two, as it says at the end of this chapter in verse 31, to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach who Jesus is. So in verses 7 through 10, Luke's narrative continues, and it says, In that region, Malta, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius. This would actually be the Roman governor of the island, the term that's used there in the Greek called the leading citizen. He was the Roman governor of Malta itself, which the Romans ruled, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So here we see great healings taking place on the island of Malta, which wasn't that big of a place. I believe it was eight miles wide, 18 miles long, pretty small island. God's doing a great work amongst the people. What is the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles and healings? Not so the minister can build a hanky ministry and make a bunch of money selling hankies to people and bamboozling them over you know, his little healing ministry. The point is always, as we saw in the book of Acts earlier, to provide an opportunity to point men to Christ. That's the reason for healings, for miracles. Provides opportunity to point men to Christ, first and foremost. It says in verse 10, they also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Now, I've seen this many times in my life, where just as you acting as a Christian person, um, you're somehow rewarded with some material earthly blessing. I remember I was a Christian in Teen Challenge only about three months and a repairman came to the house that we all lived in. There was like 21 guys living in this house, Teen Challenge. I think it was the stove that was broke. And I don't have many experiences like this, but I sensed that God wanted me to pray for this maintenance man's right eye because I sensed that something was wrong with it. There was nothing physically to leave you to think there was something wrong with it. It was just a sense that I had. And so... I asked the guy, I said, could I pray for you? I sense the Lord wants me to pray for your right eye for healing. And the guy was stunned. And he talked about how he has a disease in his eye and how it's been a problem and how he's probably going to eventually have to have surgery with it. 
And so we prayed for him that God would heal him. And when it was done, he just wrote off the thing. He said, you guys don't owe me anything. He was in tears. He was stunned at what, you know, that God cared for him. And so I've seen this time and time again. I remember one time I went to the nose specialist because let's let the cat out of the bag. I can't smell, okay? And I won't say any weird jokes <laughs> about all that, but I can't. And so I went to a nose specialist, finally, after like five years of not being able to smell, because I thought it was just some dopey little thing. I might as well get it fixed, right? Because it is nice to smell. It does warn you about things. It does. It actually is the means whereby 85% of your long-term memory is stored. When you lose your sense of smell, you can't remember long-term like you once could because so many of your memories are tied to your sense of smell. So I met with the guy. He looked up my nose for like 15 seconds. He goes, yeah, you'll never smell again. (laughs) So I asked him, I said, oh, yeah, when I was young, I did a lot of drugs. I said, I snorted PCP all the time. I said, so I'm like suffering the consequences of my ill-gotten ways when I was young, eh? And he goes, it could be, but... A lot of people just lose their sense of smell after the age 45, about 15% of the population, actually. So I bet there's some of you who can't smell either. Maybe. (laughs) So anyways, I end up, he asked me something along the lines of, so how did you change? And I ended up sharing my testimony with him for like 15 minutes, standing in his office. And, you know, I'm a man, so you always think about money. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it's like $450 for this guy to look at my nose for 15 seconds and <laughs> tell me I'll never smell again. You know, that's why I didn't go for five years. $450 to go to a nose specialist? That's crazy. So by the time I'm done, he's l- l- watching, listening. You can tell he's impacted. Asked a couple more questions and he said, here, when you go up to the front, just tell the nurse you only owe $75. I said, Cool. Thank you. So what happened here with Paul is part of Christian life. Really, it is. We faithfully serve him. God provides in the ways that he does. And here we see the blessing of God coming to all the people on the boat because they provided such things as were necessary. They honored us in many ways and provided such things as necessary because of how God was using Paul. Because Paul was faithful to the Lord. Rewarded with some material earthly blessing. Verse 11 through 15 goes on with the trip that they were taking. And it says, after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship. So it's three months. Winter is now over. Remember, we talked about it's about three months long. Sailing can resume again. Pliny the Elder tells us, there's Pliny the Elder because there's also Pliny the Younger. So, some of you are familiar with history, know that. Pliny the Elder tells us that navigation on the Mediterranean resumed on February 8th each year. So, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus boarded this ship sometime in mid-February 61 AD. Now, the ship, it says, had a figurehead of the two brothers, right? Which had wintered at the island. This is referring to the constellation Gemini. The two brothers, the constellation Gemini. The two brothers being the twins, 
Castor and Pollux, who were sons of Leda, queen of Sparta. They were considered sons of Zeus, and their cult was widespread in Egypt. And remember, this boat is from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Remember, they were shipwrecked on an Alexandrian ship, and now they continue their journey on an Alexandrian ship. The Alexandrians were doing a lot of shipping. It says in verse 12, And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. Syracuse is located on the east coast of Sicily. Do you have the little slide thing, Ivan? So, here's Syracuse, right? Right there, see the red dot for those of you who are within eyeshot of it. Here's Malta. They just sailed up to there. Syracuse is in Sicily, right? It's uh, located on the east coast of Sicily, and it was the most important city in Sicily. Verse 13 says, From there we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli. They're in Italy. I'm surmising that's how you pronounce it. Puteoli. (laughs) So they go up to Regium. There it is on the toe of Italy. See that? And then they go from Regium all the way up to Puteoli. And that's 180 miles, and they made it in two days showing you how important wind was. Remember we saw how long it took them in our last sermon just to go like, I think it was 60 miles? Took many days, no wind. Here they make it 180 miles in two days. Good wind. Makes a big difference, right? Pudioli was a resort town in the Bay of Naples. It was the port city of Neapolis, which is modern-day Naples, Italy. It was the principal port of southern Italy. It vied with Ostia. How many of you have know what Ostia is? Anybody here know what Ostia is? Ostia was the port city up by Rome, farther north in Italy. Ostia was 13 miles from Rome. The ships would come there and they would port by wagon all the supplies, food, materials from Ostia to Rome. Claire and I have been to Ostia. If you get to ever get there, which you may never get to do now because of what's happening in the world, um, it is incredible to see the whole city still there. Like you've heard of Pompeii, right? How they dug Pompeii out from the earthquake that took place, or pardon me, the volcano that took place. Like we went to Pompeii too, which is down by Naples. And that's all been dug out so that you can see how people lived, walk on the very streets they walked, Ostia is exactly the same way, only a thousand times better. Titus built a huge amphitheater that still stands there. You know Christians preach there, out on the streets. The toilets are still there. The bakery's there. Okay? Blocks and blocks. Temples to fake gods are still standing there. It's called Ostia. So Naples was, or Puteoli, was to southern Italy what Ostia was to the north. Um, Claire and I, by the way, also stood at the port in Naples. So isn't that cool, realizing Paul stood there about 2,000 years earlier in the same place? Pretty awesome. From here on out, they would travel by foot and wagon. No more sailing. Okay? Notice that. Now they're on foot. They're going to make it to Forum of Appius or Appi Forum. 
They're going to make it to three taverns or three inns, and then they're going to make it to Rome. Got it? Away they go. So they're traveling by foot at this point. It says in verse 14, when they arrived at Putioli, we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. So in Putioli, they find, they find Christians, and what do we keep learning as we're going through this travel with Paul? Christians are everywhere. Everywhere. The seven days that Paul was invited to stay with them was probably offered to Paul once they knew it would be seven days before Julius, the Roman centurion, who's in charge of Paul and the prisoners, remember that, Acts 27.1, Julius, would continue to Rome. So it may have took that long to change the cargo from the ship to the wagons and whatnot. Paul would have been chained and under guard during all this. Now listen to me. Okay, listen. I want to note that while Paul was walking from Puteoli to Neapolis, he would have walked past the tomb of Virgil. Virgil was one of the most noted poets of Rome. His tomb was along the Via Domitiana, which was the main Roman road between Puteoli and Neapolis. Little did Paul know when he passed the tomb of Virgil that day that Christ and Christianity would conquer the entire Roman Empire so thoroughly, changing the entire culture and nation, their ethic and laws, that just 300 years later, all the way through the 15th century, that at every church service held in that town, a poem about Paul and this most famous poet would be recited during the church service. And here is what it said. Quote, Virgil's tomb the saints stood viewing, and his aged cheek bedewing. Fell the sympathetic tear. And then it has in quotes what Paul said. Ah, had I but found thee living, what new music wert thou giving, best of poets and most dear? Unquote. This little poem about Paul reveals the all-encompassing power of the gospel upon individuals and nations. Perhaps Paul would have won Virgil to Christ, and instead of writing poetry about homosex and paganism, he would have produced far different thought. This reveals the power of the gospel upon individuals. And that this poem was known and thought well of by the populace for over a thousand years shows the power of the gospel upon nations. His is a conquestorial kingdom. His ambassadors conquer nations, not with swords, but with words. God's word. His rule is for all men individually and for nations corporately. And we see it here. Think of this. Paul was probably on that Alexandrian ship when they got to Puteoli thinking, ah, these false gods, these two brothers on the figurehead of this boat, right? He lived in the midst of a pagan culture, coming head on with it, with a totally new worldview called a Christian worldview, totally new ethic called a Christian ethic, with good news for man that he could be saved. 
that his life could be transformed, that he could be born again, become a new creature in Christ. Little did he know that Christianity would have such a massive impact over the next 300 years that there would be this little poem written about him and Virgil, who died in, I believe it was, 12 B.C. or something. Little did he know that Christianity would have that much of changing the culture, bringing that amount of change to the culture. And yet we live in the midst of a Christianity that thinks Christianity shouldn't have no impact on the culture. We're just here waiting for the flight out. A totally different worldview the early churchmen had than the churchmen of our day. We go from the Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the Gemini to a poem about Paul winning a man to Christ. That's huge. God's kingdom changes individuals. His kingdom changes nations. Plain and simple. Leaving Puteoli by foot, it says in verse 15 here, And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. The Appi Forum and Three Inns were located on the Via Appia. Do you know that road still exists today? The Via Appia is still there. It was started in 312 B.C. It's the oldest, straightest, and most perfectly made of all the Roman roads. And Paul walked it between Neapolis and Rome. Claire and I walked on that road. Same stones, 2,000 years plus. The same stones Paul walked on and the early Christians walked on, you can walk on. Same exact stones. The road's still there. Pretty amazing, right? The Appia Forum and Three Inns were halting stations, which were built by the Romans every 10 to 15 miles along the road. Appia Forum was located 43 miles from Rome, and a market town had built up around it. The Three Inns was located about 33 miles from Rome. Christians had come out of Rome to come and greet Paul. Some made it, Luke says, all the way to Appia Forum, 43 miles, and others to three ends, 33 miles. This is the triumphal entry of a Christian. Paul arrives in chains. It is the triumphal entry of a Christian. And the brethren rally around him. And Paul, the scripture says here, quote, thank God and took courage, unquote. The triumphal entry, in fact, the entire life of a Christian is often so different than that of the world. Their reward is here. Ours awaits us. Men note them here, those who live for the world, who are of the world. They note them here. The best of men who of this world is not even worthy, as it says in the book of Hebrews, are unnoted by the historians of the world. And they are the best of men. That's why my, my children have to read about the missionaries of old, the churchmen of old. Because it brings strength, courage, imagination, 
inspiration to them to see the lives of those who have gone before them who faithfully served Christ in the earth. Amen? Remember Keith Green? He had this promising career. He's going to make it big as a rock star. Already was on TV and all this stuff. And then Christ changes his life. As far as the world's concerned, he died in obscurity. Yet he impacted hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives to the glory of God. Many went to the mission field precisely because of his teaching and preaching. Verse 16 says, Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So in other words, he's in house arrest. He's not in prison itself. That's good. Verse 17 says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation, For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. He always had his chains on, wherever he went. Who's the hope of Israel? Jesus. The Jews didn't believe he was. The Christians knew he was. Paul calls the Jewish leaders together and explains his situation, but notice how they respond. Verse 21. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. This is always the danger when there's gossip going on, right? Do you tell people about it or not tell people about it? Because <laughs> you don't know who's been gossiped to, right? So you could be spreading the gossip yourself. Was Paul spreading the gossip about himself to these men? Many scholars think he wasn't. Many scholars think that he was actually that they actually played like they didn't know who he was. And there's good reason for that. Some scholars think the Jews did know about Paul, but wanted nothing to do with the matter. And here's why. Listen to me now. Remember, we saw the Jews were thrown out of Rome under Claudius in 49 AD, most likely because of riots they had precisely because of Christ and Christianity. They weren't allowed back in until 54 A.D. It's now 61 A.D., only seven years since their whole lives were uprooted. Their economic situation collapses when that happens to you. You no longer have your business. So the idea is is that they did know, but they didn't want anything to do with it because they didn't want to upset the apple cart that they now had again. Just got reestablished. We're back here in Rome. We don't need to take on this fight from the Jews over here in the Middle East. In verse 23, uh, verse 22, pardon me, notice what they do say. But we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect, talking about Christianity, the way. We know that it is spoken against everywhere. It is spoken against everywhere. So they're now willing to at least give Paul a hearing regarding Christ and Christianity, somewhat more tolerant than the Jews of 49. So a day is set up to do so. 
And verse 23 says, So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. So this went all day, from morning till evening. The Jewish leaders are there. He's trying to convince them to believe in Jesus. He's trying to convince them to understand the things of the kingdom of God. And verse 24 says, And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. Isn't this often the case? Some believe, some disbelieve. Now notice what Luke's notice what Luke pens as Paul's final word to the Jews. Verses 26 through 28. So when they did not agree among themselves, verse 25, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And they will hear it. And the Gentiles did and are hearing it for 2,000 years now. Nations were and are being transformed by the power of the gospel. This is the consummate message of the book of Acts. His kingdom expands in the earth. And that's the sum total that Luke comes to here at the end. The kingdom of God expands in the earth. From the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles to the uttermost places of the earth. Amen? It has always been the design of God to win all the peoples unto himself, not just the Hebrews. His covenant has always been for all men, not just the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the chosen people through whom he would make himself known and by whom the Messiah would come, but the plan was for all men to come to know the Father through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus himself knew this and spoke of this, and it was Luke, the author of our book, the book of Acts, that recorded what Jesus spoke of this in the gospel he penned, the gospel of Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Jesus himself spoke of the fact that the kingdom of God goes beyond that of the Jews, that it goes to those outside of Judaism and to all the men of the earth. Luke chapter 4, let's start in verse 14. The scripture reads, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, unquote. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. They want signs, miracles. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years, six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Seraphath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, a non-Jew. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian, a non-Jew. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust Jesus out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. What did Jesus say last in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Unquote. And this was hard for the Jewish mind to accept. That the kingdom was beyond Judaism. That the Messiah wasn't just for them, but for all the men of the earth. It was hard for them to accept to wrap their minds around. That's why Luke spent so much time in the book of Acts showing us how the Jews had to grapple with these things where they came to the conclusion that Paul was right, at least some of them. Even those who believed in Jesus had to be brought through that journey to see that Paul was right. Most Christians today, unfortunately, are like verses 26 and 27 in Acts chapter 28. They're just looking for people to attend their social clubs, their moose clubs, because that is all their churches are, and the people love it so. True Christianity looks for men, produces men, who turn from their sin, believe in Jesus, and want to see his rule applied to every area of their life and every area of life. Men who want to see the world turned upside down. Men who are bothered when they see an area of life here in the earth that hasn't been brought under the domain of Christ. Those are the type of men the early church produced and was looking for through the preaching of the gospel. And look what it says here in verses 30 and 31 as we finish up. Verse 29, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him in chains, house arrest, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It's a great slam against those who say we should just preach the gospel. No, God's word addresses every area of our lives and every area of life. 
That's why it says, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. Many have reduced themselves just to, we just preach the gospel, we gather in our moose club each week, we're waiting for the flight out, we can't wait to get out of here. And they've changed their little prophetic charts over and over and over and over again in order to fit the scheme so they can get out. That's what, that's what, that's what they gather for week after week. That is not what the early churchmen gathered for. It's not what the early Christians gathered for. They wanted to turn the world upside down for Jesus. To see it all brought under his domain. And they were willing to hazard their lives to see it take place. And so should we. Be willing to do the same. It should bother us. When Amy Carmichael went over and did her mission work in India to preach the gospel, that's what she was sent there, preach the gospel, Amy. And she found out young girls were being used as temple prostitutes. She began to interpose on their behalf and deliver them out of those places of disgust and immorality. And the Christians wrote to her and said, Oh, Amy, you shouldn't waste your time with that kind of stuff. Just preach the gospel, Amy. And she responded with a great letter, which you all should read. And the top line to me is, she told them, souls are more or less attached to bodies. God's word addresses every area of life and every area of our life. And as his people, as his ambassadors, when we see something contrary to his way, we have a duty to speak up about it. Not knock it up on our prophecy chart as, ha, we're this much closer to leaving now. Only to do it again and again and again, and I've watched it all these years. And they actually change what the Word of God says to fit the geopolitical situation within the world for the little schemes. And it's disturbing to watch. And I won't be silent about it. We are to proclaim Christ. We are to proclaim His kingdom to the earth. May we take His kingdom and Jesus to the nations. May we take His law, word, and gospel to the nations of the earth, to the Gentiles. Remember what we saw in Acts 13 and Paul's first missionary journey? That the first convert of the first mission to the Gentiles was a magistrate. The first Gentile who sought to hear God's word was a magistrate. And the first convert was a magistrate. The very people the churchmen and Christians of our day ignore, the very ones Paul had mission to in the final years of his life. We take his law and word and gospel to all men. Preach His Word. Your days are short. You don't need a little time to do it with some other people. Do it throughout your day. It should be a part of your life. You see someone, God arrests your heart. You must speak to them. Do it. Don't think of all the reasons why you shouldn't. Do it. At least pull out some literature. You should always have it with you. Hand them a piece of literature. If nothing else. Pointing them to Christ. Amen? We must do these things. You don't need a special call to do so. To go, to preach, to declare Him to men. It's what we do as His people. 
It should be a part of our natural Christian life. We make them known to men wherever we go throughout our day. It's just what we do. It's what we are. Amen? We must make him known to men, and we must make his rule known to men, and we must make his great salvation known to men, and we must call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, may we do that. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for this time that we've had in your word this morning to complete the book of Acts, the great thrust and story of which is make Christ known to men. Proclaim his kingdom, his salvation to all the inhabitants of the earth, O God. Lord, I thank and praise you for this year and nine months that we've had to go through this book. And Lord, I ask for your wisdom in the days ahead to know which book to preach through next, that you would give your guidance and wisdom there. I pray you continue to build up this congregation, that each one would do those things which are dear to your heart, that we would make you known to men, that we would serve you faithfully in the earth, within our families and within the marketplace. Lord, I thank you for your redemption, which is found only in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you redeemed us now with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And you translate us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. Blessed be your holy name, Father. Guide each one here in their homes. Help each man to be a priest to his home, O God. May they sit and talk about the things of you from your word, that their lives and even their deaths would be to the glory of your name, used by you to glorify you in the earth. And Lord, we look to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May Christ be praised. God bless you.